This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, LS Pod fans. It's JR here. Burt's Babes, Hoddle's Heroes, even Decanio's Dozens. We've had some iconic lineups in our history at Swindon, just like the legendary menu at McDonald's. Parkin' or Austin, sweet curry or barbecue? Why not get a McNugget share box to enjoy the debates with your mates? And thanks to book delivery, every drop-off can be a home win. Order now on the McDonald's app and you can also get rewards points too. No one wants to drop points at home, and with tasty rewards to earn, you won't be missing out. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus. Rewards registration required. Points only on menu items. Delivery fee and terms apply see mcdonalds.com hello and welcome to the Love strangers a swindon town fan podcast with me rich pullen proudly sponsored by the stfc official supporters club rogers is streaking ahead and he's onside beautiful play that is that what a good shot Very well. I'm very excited to be talking to yourself. Yet again, I've been talking to a few players from the 80s and you guys get so many requests from listeners to come on the pod. So I'm really happy and grateful that you've agreed to take part. I'm really, really honoured to be still thought of by the people at Swindon. Yeah, and you absolutely are. But this is a very hectic time for you with the Football League, well, the Championship specifically, just about to restart with you at QPR. Hectic times. It is very hectic because everything happened so quickly. It was uh, it was very slow, and then all of a sudden we've kicked into overdrive. But you know, it's about the the people that adapt to it quicker um, will 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 determine the outcome of, of what happens. Absolutely. Okay, let's talk about your career then. So, I like to start right at the beginning. So, when you were a child, who did you support, and who were your childhood football heroes? I supported Arsenal because I lived uh, less than a mile away from there, and Aston Villa, because I was born in Birmingham. So uh, many of the Arsenal team, like Charlie George and George Armstrong and people like that, Peter Marinello, people won't remember. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And those those people were, were, my, uh, were my heroes. 
Yeah, Marinello's one of these guys that was the next big thing, and it and it didn't exactly. quite kick on, did it? Exactly, exactly. He was pre Charlie Nicholas, but uh, you know, people like that, you know, back back in those in those days. What are your earliest memories of playing football on your journey to becoming a pro? Playing for the Cubs when I was eight, and then playing for a team called Bemerton, who was uh, uh, as an under ten. Um, they were in the Caledonian Road in Islington. That was where, where it was brought up. And then the Islington, the, uh, the district team, school teams. Um, and then obviously, fortunately, uh, becoming an apprentice at Bristol City. Yeah. And what position were you when you were growing up? I was a right winger, believe it or not, to start with. And then uh, what happened was uh, while I was at school, while I was training at Arsenal, actually, when I was 14, just a guest training thing. I broke my ankle and then my uh, school teacher, uh, Bryn Jones, put me as a sweeper because I was quick. When I came back, shouldn't have really played. He, he just strapped me foot up, you know, in, not, not like nowadays where you've got all sorts of heat lamps and ice and whatever. And I and then I ended up becoming a defender. Well, that that is at least logical. Sweeper aside, going from right winger to to right back, there's logic in that. Because yeah. I spoke to many people that start as a centre forward and then become a left back or a centre back, etc. It's usually us less talented forwards that end up going back. You keep going back till they ended up as sub. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, were there many clubs looking at you when before you signed for Bristol City? Did you have much options, or was it was it just Bristol City? Uh, no, well, what happened was I left Arsenal because I sort of uh, I broke my ankle, and then I and then when I came back, I sort of released myself because I was way out of my depth. Um, and I went to Cholton and I signed schoolboy for them pretty early and I was going to be, you know, a top player for them. And then I had the injuries now that we all know Osgoods and this one and that one, you know, those sorts of growing injuries. And I, I didn't get my my apprenticeship. It was in those days. But have, we had a really good, um, in, we got to the English schools finals as Islington. And uh, a lot of people were watching those 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 players, we had Chris White, the ex-Arsenal player playing, and Ray Houghton, and you know, play for Liverpool was in our team. So um, people were looking at us, and I, I ended up going for a trial at uh, at, at Bristol City. Um, John Economou, who played for Bristol City, he was in my school team as well, and um, I ended up getting a, a, an apprenticeship there. Two to spend two years there. Yeah. Chris White is one of these sort of forgotten players, really. I remember Chris White winning the league with Leeds United near near to the end of his career. But, you know, it's one of these players that when they retire, I don't know if that happens with top flight footballers anymore, but, you know, used to be so prominent, um, Chris White. And then him and, like, David Fairclough. and Well, that that Leeds squad generally, you know, it's plenty of players that sort of the last of the first division championship winning teams. Gordon Strachan were in that, yeah. So Bristol City, I'm not allowed to talk about them for too long, but you know, you, you were there for two years and what people won't realise, probably as Swindon fans, is Bristol City a top tier team at this stage during the Alan Dix era. What what were your memories of, of learning at Bristol City, your trade? Well, when you think about it, you know, they had Norman Hunter, Terry Cooper, Chris Garland, Jerry Gow, they had some really, really top top players in there. And we used to clean the boots in those days. And, and sweep the terraces and paint the ground and anything but football, really. Um, but uh, I learned a lot there from, from them. And, you know, really, as a schoolboy, 
uh, going in there at 16, if you if you think about it, it's only been probably just you know 10, 15 years before that England won the World Cup. So these people were like you know the heroes of mine, really going uh, going in there. So I did learn a lot at Bristol City. I learned a lot about about resilience and and, and things like that there. Uh, but for, unfortunately for me, I didn't make it there. What was the reason they give? I mean, I always talk to people and they always say height and things like that. What, what was your one? Not very, not being very good. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't that wasn't the uh, that wasn't the official thing. But you know, having been in the job that I'm doing now, sometimes you can flannel it. But you know, you have to look at the the, the players that they had there at the time, and um, you know, probably didn't be a, an absolute uh, massive favour by releasing me because you can hold on to a dream that's not there. And you end up going out of the game. So, um, you know, it, it was a great learning experience. But, you know, um, I wasn't ever going to be a top player there. I think I'd rather be told that I wasn't good enough than be told I was too short. Well, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But you know, if you get told you're not good enough, you know, you've, you've got two ways you can look at it. You can grit your teeth and try to prove them wrong. Or you can go out of the game and go into another profession that you're more suited to. Absolutely. So... You get released. This is a critical time in anybody's career. You know, you could easily fall into a different trade, but you're picked up by Brighton. What was your journey from being released by Bristol City to joining Brighton? I got released by Bristol City. In those days, you, there was no emails and agents to, to, to get you in contact with things. What, what we had to do was uh, you had to write letters. So I wrote letters uh, all, all over the place and... A lot of the times, in those days, they would they would actually write back to you. That the clubs would write back to you. So, I wrote to wrote to two or three clubs that said, you know, sorry, you know, we we can't give you a trial. But while I was at Bristol City, I, I actually was in the England Under Twenty squad, um, and so Brighton had Gary Stevens there. Gary Stevens was in the squad with me, and the, when the letter landed on the desk, they asked him about me, and and he. You know, Gabe said, you know, I was I was a fair player. So I went then down there for a trial. And to be fair, it went swimmingly. <laughs> uh, you know, it was unbelievable. I mean, it's when you leave somewhere and you now are fighting to, to, to get a career, you know, I ended up doing the Rocky training, you know, running every day, press-ups, sit-ups, whatever it took to be the fittest I could be. When I went there, it impressed them and they signed me almost straight away. And, um, you know, I got released by Bristol in, uh, you know, in the end of the season, May, June. And then in November, I was actually in the first team squad at, at Brighton. And that would have been Alan Mullery then. So as an Arsenal yeah. fan, um, just a few years ago, you would have been cursing Alan Mullery because, of course, he's a, <laughs> he's a Spurs legend. Yeah, but you know what? He really uh, believed in me and uh, I really found someone that that I, I could play for and um, and the way he treated me was was outstanding and the man that gave you your debut as well yeah 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 he yeah. gave him my debut and uh, but funny enough it was, it, if you think about it I got my debut at 18 my contract was ending could you imagine that in in the Premier League now with an 18 year old English player could <laughs> you know you, you'd never work again would you with a contract you'd get so um, I went into that summer with no contract. Um, I got a new three-year deal. And just a couple of weeks before we were going back to pre-season, uh, Alan got the sack in the close season. So uh, a new manager came, uh, Mike Bailey, uh, who didn't fancy me. I was in the first team squad, but he didn't fancy me. So I didn't play a lot for Mike. 
um, which was, you know, difficult. But I've been a very injury-prone player through, throughout my career. I mean, when I was at Bristol City, I had two operations as, a, as a, an apprentice at 17. So I've been very injury-prone with, with uh, bad knees and, 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 and other, other injuries. So I had Mike Bailey there for a period of time at, at, um, at Brighton. Didn't play a lot. But it's so funny, ironically... We played against Swindon's reserves on a Tuesday night, uh, on, a, on a Tuesday afternoon. And I was actually sub for the reserves. Uh, that's how I slipped down. And uh, he got sacked on the Wednesday. And on the Saturday, I was Jimmy Miller took over and I was back in the team. So, uh, you know, it's about resilience, really, and keep, keep keeping going and believing in yourself. And uh, fortunately for me, by the end of that season, we got to the cup final and I played in the cup final. Yeah. Before we get to the cup final, I'm pretty sure, like in your Brighton career, it's pretty much a manager every year, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it was. It was. Yeah. You know, uh, the first year I was there, we had, uh, we, you know, when I when I was with with Alan, we we ended up um, staying up in the last second from last game of the season. We, you know, we we ended up staying up, and I made my debut um, against Crystal Palace and. It was it was a big it was a big deal, and then when Alan left, Mike Bailey um, took took over. Then Jimmy Melia um, came in, and then Chris Catlin came in. So uh, you know, my, myself and Chris uh, had a good relationship, but I don't we, we did clash um, somewhat. Um, I think I was a, a little bit more fiery then than I am now, and uh, he loaned me to Swindon. Yeah. When, when we talk about clashing, now you work in the coaching element. Do you have do you have players try and clash with you? And do you just sort of like, I remember I was on that side of the table once as well. How, how is it easy is it for you to deal with in that respect? Uh, well, if I would have been managing myself, I would have probably beat me up. So, <laughs> because uh, I, um, I was, you know, you look back now and you think things are a lot more... Uh, I would say people people think a lot more about emotions and all those sorts of things now than they did in in, in my day. Hmm. So I think I, th- I think there was no long way around it in, in our day. It was uh, the manager's way or the highway, which I I do actually believe in to a point. Um, but, but you know, the, going on the other side of the the the, 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 the table now. You know things like bereavements and things like that. Um, Louis, Lou, Lou Macari is probably the one of the first people I, I, I knew that actually my mum died when I was at Swindon, who actually took that into consideration and gave me some very very good advice. Um, but nowadays that's just the norm. That's that that's that's just the norm to, to for people to think about the emotions first rather than the actions. Uh, I don't think it's totally. Um, the right way but i think it's it's at least better than it was you know back in the day yeah sure we got to talk about the cup final simply what's it like to play in front of a cool 99,000 people well you know one of the things that happens i was 21 at the time and people say you know just remember, make sure you enjoy it because it flashes by and and um and you know and they always say you know that uh, youth is wasted on the young and it is because you've taken it for granted as if you're going to play in it every week. Um, but in some respects, it allows you to calm down. 
Um, it, it, it was, a, you know, a pinnacle of, of my personal career in, in, in a lot of ways from a from a limelight point of view. But it, it was just something that you dreamt about uh, from being a kid because in those days it was more imp- people were looked at the cup final was such a big deal, which is as much as big a deal as winning the league. It was something that everybody dreamt dreamt on. I know it's taken a bit of the shine off now, but people won't realise, you know, in those days the whole country stopped for the cup final you know there was things there was a couple of things that the country stopped for like the grand national the royal variety show and the cup final they were three of the biggest things that people people would just everybody be sat around the table everybody would come home uh, to watch it it was on both channels say both channels now there's a, um, hundreds of channels there was only three or four channels in those days mm-hmm. so it was on itv and bbc um it was a massive massive deal so I'm very proud to have at least experienced that, you know, because obviously being a quite a limited had a limited career, that was probably one of the, the highlights of it. Yeah, absolutely. Perfectly understandable. I mean, I'm 36 and the FA Cup has that sort of meaning to my age group as well, because I remember BBC, ITV, and I certainly remember the coverage starting in the morning and doing the whole uh, bus journeys, people messing around in the hotels, you know, and as they yeah. uh, as they talk about each player and say something silly about them. I mean, the game is one of those iconic ones as well. Again, for my generation, it's the one that, you know, in the 90s when they were going... Not all FA Cup finals are rubbish. Remember this one. It was, <laughs> it was still, it still goes because obviously, um, um, Gordon Smith's miss. I've, I've had his yeah. son on the podcast, Grant, and we've talked about yeah. that. And the fact that you really went toe to toe with Manchester United on the, in the, in the game that you played. Um, exactly. just one of those really, I mean, I've seen the highlights to it several times over the years. And it's just one of those ones where, man, you got so close. Well, you know, at the end of the day, believe it or not, Gordon Smith, Gordon Smith uh, gave us another bonus for the, for the next game. And in those days, a bonus, any bonus was high, you know, like nowadays people don't care about the bonuses, they're getting paid so well. But, uh, you know, to get another chance to go there, I didn't play in the second game because I got an injury in the first game. Uh, but, you know, the whole experience, you know, is something that you'd always remember and, and more for your family. Than yourself, really. Yeah, and the fact that you guys equalised so late on—that that sort of like the miss alone. Because I don't think the miss is that bad, to be honest. I think, no. You know, I've seen far, far, you know, damning misses than that one. I think it's one of those ones that have been blown completely out of proportion. Yeah. I feel really sorry for the guy. Um, no, but it's one of those moments where, like, um, you scored so late on. That moment alone would have felt like a winner. I think, anyway. Exactly. Yeah. You know. You know what. He's had to uh, endure the ridicule of that, you know, long after. But people don't realise what a good player he was. He was absolutely was very stylish player, and 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 probably a, a brilliant number ten. Now he would have been brilliant. So, you know, he had a good career, but you know, it's one of those things, and and I'm sure he'd rather be remembered for that than not remembered at all. Is it frustrating that? You have your first manager, you're still young when you join Brighton. So Alan Mullery sort of bringing you in slowly but surely. You don't get much luck with Mike Bailey, as you mentioned. Jimmy plays you. You're a regular um, throughout that season. And then when Jimmy leaves, you're again sort of put aside. Was that down to injury or was it just that he just didn't yeah, fancy I, again? Yeah, yeah, I was injured a lot. 
and uh, you know I'd get an injury and not be able to play, and then you have to fight your way back into the team, and then they sign people who uh, like Kieran O'Regan, who he he, he played, um, and. You know, when you've got people like him who could run all day, then all of a sudden you got you have got a fight on your hands. And he was younger than me, but he was but he was such a dedicated, strong player that uh, it, it was difficult for me to get back in the team once I'd had those injuries. Well played. Hobble. And uh, No More Heroes asks, what, what drew you to Swindon in the first place? Because he yeah. felt that you were doing a good job at... Brighton and when you look at it from like a modern mindset you see somebody who's playing you know more than adequately in the first division and then suddenly the fourth division comes a calling but is it one of these situations where like for my career I need to get games and drop down these levels no I, I yeah yes and no I mean to be honest with you when you think about it I wouldn't have done that had I had an agent who, who would have given me better advice and my agent didn't give me the right advice but Lou Macari, you know, you know, when you look at it, that's Lou Macari, you're looking at that, you know, and don't forget when you're still early 20s, you would have known Lou Macari from Celtic when you were at school and you've known him from his Man United career, you know, when he played against Arsenal, when they, they went to that cup final where, where uh, the goal was scored in the last minute and stuff like that. So Lou Macari was a hero really as, as, a, pers- as, a, as, a, as, a, as a person and a player. And then when I spoke to Lou, Lou was very convincing and uh, very straightforward in how he convinced me to come to the club. And I thought was go there and play on loan. I, I did very well on loan. And uh, if it would have been the modern era now, you probably wouldn't. You wouldn't probably wouldn't uh, have done that. Do you think that notion of man that that guy was my hero when I was younger? Does that still have pulling power in in football now, or are we talking like it's more cynical and more financial? Do you think there are people that will join a club because man, I love that guy? I I personally think that that that, that there is that, but I think nowadays at top level, the financial situation overshadows the the uh, hero worship, shall I say? So I think if it, if there's a thought and it's equal, then they will go to someone like Frank, who's been fantastic. He's got a very good coaching t- um, uh, staff around him that can make you better. Then I think that that will come into it. But I definitely think that the financial elements of it play a, a massive part in, in where the people move. If you think about it, back in those days, the, the, the golf in wages was not as as big as it is now, for argument's sake, I mean, I'm I'm going to be frank with you. I was earning probably 275, 300 pounds at, at Brighton, and I was getting gotten nearly the same at Swindon. So, you imagine that now, that that wouldn't happen, would it? No, it would not. So, you, you just wouldn't. You just wouldn't. You'd be a reserve team player at Brighton. You probably wouldn't be able to match your wages going down to 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 League One and League Two. So. That's a negative side of the game, really. Yeah. Uh, but that was the times and, you know. Absolutely. So we got Lou Macari, but this is the start of the Lou Macari revolution as well. So, you know, another major, major name. Harry Gregg is there at the same yeah, time yeah. as well. So, I mean, how influential, when you when you turn up to training for the first time, what was it like sort of looking at these sort of major, major names in, in British football? Well, Harry Gregg, you know, obviously he'd had that, that uh, Munich 
Munich disaster and came back and played and won a lot of stuff. And Harry was a big, imposing figure. Um, you wouldn't want to mess about with him, to be honest with you. But he was actually he had a softer heart than he looked as as a as a um, as, as a person. But he was pretty straightforward. They were both both um, imposing figures at, at that time, um, and I, I had a lot of respect for them both. But um, also, we had John Trollope. Now John Trollope, everybody knows that he is Mr. Swindon, and he played he played probably more games than anybody. Who, he, Countrywide at that time, and I and to be fair, John's John spent a lot of time with you talking to you. Um, he was he was probably one of the first people to really get into my head um, about 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 football and the way to think and 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 stuff stuff like that. And he played with Don Rogers. Who, who scored that goal against Arsenal in the in, in the uh, in the League Cup? Uh, one of Swindon's greatest moments. So uh, you know, so we had three top people there. Yeah, you you're what about seven when when um, Swindon win the League Cup? Do you have any memory of that? Only one. I, I remember. I remember Arsenal getting uh, vilified for losing, <laughs> and, then, uh, and then there would be the odd the odd one. I just remember the mud and the dribbling. Uh, <laughs> you know, because he he was one of the first people to don don that people used to emulate going around the keeper and and stuff like that, you know. That's amazing. That's amazing. Okay, people always ask this question. Um, they always want to know where you were based in Swindon. Did you live in Swindon or were you outside? To be honest with you, I didn't really want to come to Swindon because I was a London boy and um, Brighton wasn't far. I'd moved back from Brighton to London for family reasons. And one of the one of the reasons I came was Lou, was, Lou, Lou said, look, you can travel backwards and forwards. Which, if I look back now, why did I do that? That was stupid. But um, we had a, we had a, a hostel on Shivenham Road, so on a Thursday I would I would stay there um, with the boys. That was uh, Kenny Allen used to run it, um, <laughs> and it, it was it was uh, it was it was funny. If you look back now, that we had some great laughs and that there. But that that's where I was based. Um, were you, were, you there, were you there at the same time as Adam McLaughlin was there? Because he mentioned... At the club, yeah. Yeah, yeah he went, remember he came from Man U, he was just a young boy and we used to... A good player he was as well. What a good player. Uh, we had a, we had a few good laughs there. Um, and, and when you think about it, he was, he was an under-maturated um, player that a lot of people would look back and think, oh, why... why why did uh, how did he even make it in the game? But he he proved that what a good player he was. You know, a good passer, uh, setting up goals. He could had a good shot, and he just needed time. And he proved that time made him a top player. Yeah. So you arrive during a time where Swindon had just had under sadly Ken Beamish. We'd had our worst finish in years and years and years, if if ever, in the football league. Probably not ever, but um, we'd had a terrible season the year before, and Lou's come in, and it's it's a, it's a consolidation season really. There's a, there's a sort of beginning of a new a new squad. Um, it goes all right, you know, we're we're comfortably mid table, which is much better than the season before. But then there, like all things Swindon, there is that element of drama, and Venkman brings it up with his question here. He says. 
what what was your take on the sacking and reinstatement of Lou? And do you have any memories of the amazing South End match when there was a pitch invasion um, with calls to reappoint Makari at the time? So, I mean, Swindon weren't doing terribly. It was all behind the scenes stuff. What do you remember of that time? Yeah, I mean, we were we were all behind Lou. Um, when he got the sack, we went round his house, um, and I was I actually. Uh, was thinking about leaving myself because obviously Lou had brought me in. I probably would have never come, gone from Brighton to Swindon if it hadn't been for him. Um, you know, because there, there would have been other op- op- opportunities. I still had two years left on my contract at, at at Brighton, so it goes to show you what a big pull he was for me to give up that contract and then go to to to, to Swindon based on the project that he was trying to do. So, yeah, I mean, we I've got strong memories of that time. I remember sitting around his house. I remember him being choked uh, and every player went to every player went to his went to his house. So uh, the players were behind him, but very much behind him at that time. Because it's such an unusual situation for the reinstatement alone, isn't it, in football? Yeah, and, and it showed that, you know, whoever whoever made that decision, you know, that, that it was probably one of the best decisions they ever made for the club. Um, and, and it shows a lot of humility to go back on a decision like that. Yeah. Um, on Pitch Matters, Sutton Red asks, uh, well, he says that you were good on the ball. Um, you weren't just a hard man, but who in your career at Swindon did you kick highest in the air? Did I kick highest in the air? Well, I'll tell you. Um, I'll tell you what. Uh, one of my one of my good friends at Swindon was Lee Barnard, and we had a fight once <laughs> in, in, the, <laughs> in the gym. It was probably handbags, but after that, we became the best of friends. Um, so, you know, at that, in, in those days, you were allowed to kick people weren't you yeah. and that was the only time really that I was hard at anything because on uh, off the pitch you know I, I couldn't fight my way out of a paper bag but on the pitch for some reason I turned into this uh, this idiot that, that that used to top people and get stuck in and obviously not trying to uh, stop anyone's career but you know just playing to the way that the times were at, at that time but uh no, it was it, it was uh, it, it was really a, a, a time of physical, um, where you could be physical as you like, you know. But but to be fair, if you look at Lee Lee, could he play now? Yeah, box to box player, get it, play, have a good shot, get back into shape, disciplined like you like you've never known, um, you know. And, and you look you look at someone someone like him, you'd have him first on your team sheet. Yeah. In terms of being a footballer in the 80s, because there's a lot of stereotypes about it. I mean, this is a time where football isn't the most glamorous thing. You know, many would would have been predicting, you know, it was winding down as the nation's number one sport. As a professional that time, what was football like in, in, in that era? Uh, it was very grey. A lot of the... Uh, the, the, the stadiums needed regenerating like they have been now hmm. um they, a lot of them a lot of the, the the fans were probably disenchanted with the uh, disillusioned with the way that the national team was doing at the time as well um and it, and and you know it, it lost its appeal to a lot of people i think bringing in the three points rejuvenated it bringing in the playoffs rejuvenated it 
and they only just started really when I when, you know I think the second year when I was at Swindon but um, it was there was a lot of them there's a lot of racism on the terraces as well um, and obviously the hooliganism with with uh, ter- territory being uh, guarded by fans um, it, it it was probably a very difficult time, very difficult time for for uh, for us to get through at that time. And in some respects, although uh, it was a more innocent time for for players, you know, it, it was probably the the platform for what's happening now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm talking to you, you know, the day after Colston statues being dragged down in the city where I live in Bristol, and and you know. World events are really bringing things again to the fore, which have been brought up a million times. And, you know, some Swindon players are really getting involved in it. You can tell that they are passionately, it's got them, it's hooked them in and it's brilliant. In the 80s, as you said, racism was, you know, it it was rife. And I've heard racism in, in, in football grounds in the 2010s and and it never feels good and people will say all oh, that but it is what it is what was it like mentally for you to not react to that uh i did react to it though that's the problem so uh alan mullery when i first was at uh at brighton well, I was playing a reserve game. You know, we one man and his doggy. You can hear everything. Yeah. And I made a gesture to somebody in the crowd. And to be fair to him, he pulled me after. And Alan, you wouldn't want to mess about with Alan back in those days. He was, you know, and he pulled me. And he said, "Look, you're a good player. These people don't want you to succeed. Where they, 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 they're doing it to stop you." And I always, t- I took that on board. Uh, what Alan, what Alan had said at, at the time. Now, I'm not saying I totally, you know, changed from there, but um, it, it, we forget in those in the days when your own mates could call you something, your own teammates could call you something, and it would just you just have to let it brush past, and you couldn't complain in those days because, first of all, you didn't have the economic value that these players have got now, where you can't get dropped for for saying something because you cost 20 30 mil you're on 40 grand a week they're going to want they're going to want you to play and it will highlight it more in those days you just got chloroformed if you said anything you know and, and oh what are you talking about oh they don't mean it or this that and the other whereas now you can say what you want to say if you're in in a position to say it from an economic value you've got that platform i'm glad that the younger um, generation are actually opening their mouths. I've been saying it for years. Unless somebody with economic value opens their mouth, when no one's going to pay attention, they won't pay attention to me. You know what I mean? You know because I'm an old has been, but they will pay attention to the people that are coming up. They're coming up now, and as long as they're guided in the right direction, um, as as what's true and what's not true. Then I think it's 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 brilliant that people are getting involved. Yeah, and I feel that in many ways they have no choice regardless, simply because they're not safe in their own homes anymore. Footballers, they they can I mean, they've got the right to be involved in social media and things like that, but they still get those messages, and it it, it attacks them from within now, doesn't it? So it, it's 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 not it's not ideal for them in that sense. No, it's not ideal, and and the thing is, the thing is, at the end of the day, when it, when it when it really boils down to it, um, for for people to actually understand the history, 
um, I was getting frightened that people were going to start forgetting the history and what people had done in order for them to be where they are. You know, you look at people that have gone out, they were talking about this earlier to, to a reporter. You know, we talk about the Rooney rule and things like that. We got a, we got a great coach, Ricky Hill, who actually introduced it, introduced the concept in back in 2004 or five. And I look at I look at that then and I would have been in my early 40s then. So we've lost that whole generation of coaches because there's only me and Chris Hutton that are over a certain age. So you might have Keith Curl, who's probably in his mid-50s, but Chris is probably 60, I'm uh, 58. There aren't many coaches of, the, of that age uh, from a minority background that are actually coaching at, at, at this moment. So taking the amount of time it's taking to change things, you end up losing massive generations. Uh, of uh, I've been fortunate. I, I can't say I haven't been fortunate. I'm not saying I'm the best coach. I'm not saying I'm, I, I, you know, I need any more uh, outstanding opportunities because I have been given opportunities, but also have not been given opportunities on on uh, on on the same basis. So this is not for me because like, it's easy for me to pull the ladder up and say, oh, it's been great for me. Don't worry about it. It's for the people that are coming up. It's for the people that are currently in it. And it's for the generation that we've we've um, tossed aside. Mm. Let's go to season two of Swindon now. And one of the things that I get asked a lot from people, can you ask Chris if he was a fan of all the running Lou made you do? No, I was the worst. I was a good runner. And we used to clash me and Lou a lot about it now. And listen, he was in charge and he was right. So I'm not going to say that I was right, but... <laughs> I don't think he had a sports science degree, if I'm being honest. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think when I first came, uh, one of the first, we had a game against Tranmere away. It was one of my first games, and Lou 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 actually was against eating, by the way. So we didn't. He didn't like. He was so healthy himself, and he was so fit. And the worst thing about it is John Trollope was fitter than the players. John John was ridiculously fit. And uh, the running we used to do, I mean, we used to run sometimes two miles to start training and two miles back. Um, I remember one time um, there was a hill. We used to run to this hill and he used to make us, uh, we used to have a medicine ball and you'd run up the medicine balls like running in treacle. And um, then you get to the top of the hill and you had to roll the medicine ball down the hill and catch it before it got to the bottom. <laughs> That's just <laughs> I mean, he was very inventive with what he did, but we were so fit. It was ridiculous. Uh, so I wasn't a big fan of the running. And he used to find me. I mean, we went uh, on one run once and he, he had the minibus and he drove back to the to the, uh, to the the ground and I got on the bus. And then I waited for the waiting for the boys to come back and I ended up coming third. And he was he he's, he he couldn't believe it because I didn't look well when I started off I was near the back so uh, that was another fine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, your second season at Swindon is an iconic one for Swindon fans, especially of course those who who experienced it because after several years in the fourth division or just you know not not. I wouldn't say entertaining, but it's just, you know, there's there's not a, an exciting season for a few years. There were cup runs in the late 70s, but Lou had got things back on track again. And it's a championship winning season. What what were your highlights of, of, of that time? 
of that championship season? Uh, the feeling of invincibility. You know, we just never ever thought we were going to lose when we went. We went. We went uh, on the pitch. We never thought we were going to lose, and and that that is a you know a really good feeling. You go in, no matter how you play, what you do. We never. We just always felt we were going to win. Uh, we were so fit, we would run teams into the ground. But we also had some quality players. People don't don't remember, you know, Dave Bamber, Peter Coyne, you know, people like that that were stalwarts like Andy Rowland, people like that. Do you know what I mean? We we had uh, we had people that were good players and fit and strong. Um, so it wasn't just David Moss, he, he, you know, people like that. You know, when you look at the the, the players that Louis brought in. You know, the, uh, it, it was just a feeling of invincibility at that time. Yeah. If I was to say Preston at home... You know, what? I'll be, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, doing my shoelace up on the ball <laughs> and then the winger flies in and I tip it over him and then ship it back to the keeper. And then Brian Kidd nearly ripping my head off after the game. <laughs> So to to give context to people that weren't around at the time, you got in a lot of bother from Lou McCurry for this as well. So we it's a game where Swindon are comfortably uh, we win four one, um, thanks to a Charlie Henry hat trick and a, a Nicky Coleman penalty. And you decide to do a bit of showboating, um, trap the ball, and then do your laces. Some people say sock roll, but it's laces, isn't it? It's the laces, yeah. <laughs> and, well, what happened was I was getting a bit of jit from the from the guy, the the the, the winger. You know, in those days, people don't realise the number two marked the number seven. So it was a battle between you and him. And I'd been getting a little bit of jit from him. I'd chopped him a few times, which is what you normally do. But he was he was quite a you know he was mouthing off a little bit. And I thought, right, it's four one or three one, whatever the, the score was at the time. I was wrong. Don't get me wrong. I was wrong uh, to do it. But when you're in your early 20s, that's the kind of stupidity that comes into your head. No, I need, and you don't know wrong of it. I need to see more of that in football. I need more of it. And, and the best, <laughs> thing, best thing about it is, I think, um, and a, a fan was relaying this to me, who, who remembers that time, was the fact that Lou was concerned that you had, uh, you know, motivated them for the return game at Deepdale yeah. and Swindon win 3-0 and Chris Ramsey scores after nine minutes. <laughs> And it was, you know what it was? It was one of those where you can't miss. And, you know, you just side foot it in from, from, from whatever it was. I was in the box, just side foot it in, I scored, I know. But, no, the worst thing about it was Brian Kidd, who I've got the most respect for, and he's the, probably one of the best coaches and prominent figures in the game. When I look back now, you know, what was I doing? You know, he's won the European Cup, that guy, played for every team, played for my team, played for Arsenal. It was an... Oh, he 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 went mad, and you know the size of him. I was like, you know the one, hold me back, hold me back. <laughs> but uh, but we, we we were at it. But what do you do? You must have crossed paths with him in the last few years over Man- at Man City. No, actually, we're quite we we're, we're quite um, we get on very well. Yeah. We've get gone. We've been on courses together, and he's he's a gentleman. He's actually, you know, one of the most successful people was in the game and he's very uh he has a lot of humility and uh no no uh, i don't ever remind him though because he still looks a bit tasty (laughs) (laughs) got to be to be at the in the game still at his age fair play to him um 
Clive X says, can you remember um, the Division 4 promotion party at Sandra's house in Swindon with the whole squad? Apparently it was a great night. I've got a girlfriend now, so I probably better not remember that. Yeah, we'll, <laughs> yeah, we'll move on. Uh, <laughs> I knew one of them would get me. Um, G. Busson says... Who were the real characters in that Makari title winning scene? So you've said who the best players were, what, how good they were, but who were the characters? Well, there was a few um, good characters. We didn't have many cliques in those days because I think I think uh, team camaraderie is, was completely different than it is now. You know, if you go on a night out like Sandra's party and everybody goes, everybody would be there. There wouldn't be, you know, somebody going off to do a press conference or open the, the supermarket or something like that. Uh, so the camaraderie was was fantastic, and we all I think everybody played their part in, in it at the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's what you said that Lou was building that squad. I mean, I spoke to Colin Calderwood, and that's his favourite team that he played. He played for Swindon all the way to '93, and yeah. that side was was his favourite side. You know that that era. And as I said to a couple of your colleagues from that time, I, I kind of always assumed it would be the '90s, which was his favourite time because Swindon, you know, got to Wembley twice, and he signed off with us going to the Premier League, but. I think that that happens in football, doesn't it? Where just one year or in a little period, everything just clicks, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, when you, if you think about it, Lou brought Colin in twenty-seven grand. I think he cost from Mansfield, and he was outstanding. He was he was a top player then, but he made himself into a top player. His extra, his professionalism would be something that would be held be held now. You know the extra training he'd done. He wasn't the quickest, but he always used to do his extra extra training to make him strong. And uh, he wasn't even the tallest centre half that there was, but he'd win most headers. Mm. And his leadership was outstanding. So you know that, like I said, that that uh, invincibility was something that I've probably not ever felt again, really, yeah. uh, in in the different teams that I've that I've played. Season three. I mean, you're you're pretty much a regular. For the majority, is that injury that keeps you out for for the majority of that? Well, and stupidity. Go on. Injury is a stupidity. So you know, clashing all the time with Lou for no reason. When I think, uh, but what it happened was, to be fair to Louie, my my I, my mum died in in uh, you know in nineteen eighty five. Um, I think it was eighty five. Yeah, eighty five, and uh, my head went. Oh, my head absolutely went. I was went on a two-year bender, and um, in those days, that was you know there was a drinking culture. Uh, I was genetically very fit, so I was getting away with it. Uh, one of the worst things that could have that probably could have happened that uh, I think in my first season I won Player of the Year with Colin Gordon. And then what you do is you live the life thinking that, that you can do burn the candle at both ends and um, and play. Um, so yeah, I got injured, but um, but but it was my fault. Why, when, when Louis dropped me, it was my fault. Really, I look back now and I think, why did you do that? Um, and 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 it, it it was just total being in the early early uh, in your early twenties. Does that make you a better coach, though, to have to have experienced or to have done that as a player? That gives you the ability to 
you know pass on their experience to to players who might be going through similar or might be behaving in a way that they shouldn't be as a professional yeah i don't see sometimes i think people go to see people that have never experienced that sort of thing i mean i ran a nightclub in the west end on a thursday night and so i I mean how ridiculous is that so i used to do that get home when the nightclub was over and then come into swindon on the friday train sleep in the in the uh in the um hostel on friday afternoon absolutely knackered and then uh play on the on 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 the Saturday and most of the time I did okay so you tend to start thinking that that's that's the way to live but I think in those days because you're only earning a certain amount of money anyway you you know you're trying to top your money up doing other things I mean I had a market store in in crisp street market you know I was used to go and see the girl that was running that as well so I, I was I used to do a lot of things that weren't football related because, you know, I, you know, try to open your mind for what might happen next. But running a nightclub on a Thursday probably isn't the best the best way to prepare. Um, and I look, I look now and when I talk to players, I can actually tell them from first-hand experience how your career can go from top to bottom because you don't prepare properly and you don't um, work in the way that the manager wants. Now, no, the manager wants you to perform in a certain way not only for you, but for the rest of the players. And sometimes you have to be versatile enough to do that. Yeah, I asked a serious question there, but now all I want to know is about that nightclub in the West Ends. What are we talking? Yeah, yeah, it was in Great Portland Street. It was, uh, it, it was uh, well, <laughs> it was stupid. <laughs> what music are we playing? Uh, soul to Soul. Nice. They used to be on DJs, actually. Yeah. In those days. Was that and, Jazzy uh, Bean? And... All that sort of, yeah, all that lot, yeah. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Nice. Do you get any players around as well? Well, no, because uh, obviously I used to go back to London yeah. from, from Swindon and I only used to stay there on the Friday. <laughs> so uh, we used to we used to, uh, to have start with, a, with um, you know, it, it was a scene that was changing at the time. I wanted to be part of it. I was... N- not really doing the right thing for my career. Uh, my mum had passed away and I couldn't really accept it. Yeah. Which involved a lot of alcohol and a lot of late nights. Yes. Uh, I mean, incredible, really. And this is the sort of stuff which I love doing the podcast because we don't know this, you know, and and it's amazing how you were able to just about function, but probably close to, you know, some sort of brink at some point. Mm. Yeah, and, and, you know, we talk a lot about mental health and stuff like that now. But, you know, if you look back now, you'd have been, a, I'd have been a candidate for for that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, it wasn't it wasn't thought about in those days. And you, have, you just have to get on with it and, and, and come round and get through it. And, uh, and fortunately for me, I, I did. And the fact that I was able to do the running probably helped keep me in the team. Uh, for for uh, for a period, and probably needed some sort of um, some sort of mentor or somebody who could say to you, listen. To be fair, Chris Kamara and Dave Bamber and people like that would say to me, "Come on," they would. Looking back now, they would. Uh, so people weren't complicit in it, um, but. You know, I was quite a strong character in those days and, you know, I had a mind of my own and I did what I did. And like I said, couldn't accept the bereavement. 
and uh, acted in a way I thought was right at the time. Sure. And did that result in obviously because Swindon get promoted in your in your final season, but you miss? I think you're on the bench for one of the um, the playoff games. It, was that essentially Lou had just like no more, or was it that he was just looking down a different road? What was the reason for your exit? No, because when I left, Louis wanted me to stay. So probably he he um, he dropped me, and it was my fault why I got dropped because. He had asked us to do something and, uh, you know, uh, we, we used to go to army camps and all this sort of stuff. And um, and I didn't go and everybody else went with it. I think we got promoted on the Tuesday. Oh, we got promoted. Well, anyway, he dropped me for a really, in, in a really important, because I wasn't compliant and he was in his rights to do it. He was in his rights to, he was in rights to do it. I look back now as a, having been a manager and you don't need that from, a player that you probably thought because he made me captain at one stage that you thought could could lead by example yeah um and colin colder would overtook me in that and people like dave hockaday who was very professional overtook me because of their professionalism so um it, it, you know it, it's very hard to look back and think why did i do that yeah um you know from the spot for Swindon. He scored! You're listening to the Low Strangers podcast, proudly sponsored by the STFC Official Supporters Club. You joined Southend in 87, you, you don't play that much, um, and you, you fall out of English football at that stage. Is that still like that's what you're going through at the latter stages of Swindon. Is that still manifesting at that stage or? Uh, yeah, because at those days, stages, I had more entrepreneurial stuff going on outside because I wouldn't say I had a full and out of love of football, but physically I was struggling because I had a, I, um, unbeknownst to me, I had two cracked discs in my spine mm-hmm. and uh, I kept pulling my hamstring at South End. I was injured for two years. And uh, in those days, you weren't you weren't sent for a scan straight away, and you know they would they, the treatment, as we know, was pretty um, pretty poor back in, in in those days. You know, you're getting cortisones all over the place, you're getting um, treatment that that probably would be looked down upon now. Do you, do you know what I mean? So I was there um, at Southend, injured. Um, after 12 games and probably no after 12 games probably after six or seven games and didn't play for a long period now one of the reasons why I'm able to talk to a lot of players about uh, the depression the depression uh, cycle now I'm not claiming to have been depressed so don't, I'm not going to going to you know marginalize the whole thing by saying that but if you look back and you might have thought based on what people are saying now that you you'd gone through that that cycle two years injured um, pulled hamstrings all the time quarter zones all over the place um, and just really just surviving in football just on, on my contract wasn't a big contract two or three years and I didn't I didn't do myself justice but but then again the the treatment I was receiving wasn't 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 good either yeah and yeah. is it is it a South End where you 
you start getting interested in coaching or was that before because what happens now is like still in your 20s you you go overseas don't you so i think it's malta and i, I imagine yeah. it's naxa alliance yeah, and, and then you go to the usa and it's the wonderfully named coco expos um yeah. and you're and you're player coach during that time which you know they're nice parts of the world malta i think that's florida as well so that yeah. that, that must have been good to one play football two learn get your coaching sort of um honed in and also just get away from it all no, well, what happened was during that time, it, I, I was actually had a few properties and stuff like that. I was actually doing doing okay. Um, and then there was the crash. And my partner, one of my, my, I got ripped off by a business partner, lost everything within less than a year, split up with the, with the, with the, with the lady I was living with uh, through my fault again, drinking and going out and having a good time. Uh, so my fault again. And then I had a bad, because uh, of the injury I had at South End, where I, I had a bad back. I ended up having three back operations, um, and I had a, you know, I had no money, anything like that. The PFA ended up helping me to pay for the operation that I had, so I was in a pretty bad place. I, you know, sleeping in my on my sister's in my sister's kitchen, you know. So, so and then uh, a mate of mine, Don Shanks who played for QPR, but played with him at Brighton. He got me to go to, to Malta and it was the best thing I ever did because I ended up going there and, uh, and the contracts there are not, are not very safe. So if you don't play well, you could be actually coming home um, the next day. So I went there and I was, became more professional than, than I'd ever been apart from when I started at uh, Brighton um, and Bristol City as a kid. I was more professional there, you know, because I couldn't be seen to be out drinking because they sent you home. Um, and and it was probably the best thing I ever did. I started, I ended up going, uh, getting educated um, during the siesta time. I'd go and do English and maths um, in the afternoon so I could come back and go to university. I did a lot of courses out there. Um, and I went back, took myself really back to school because you can only go to the beach so many times. And then you can only, if you don't reflect on how ridiculous, ridiculously unprofessional you had been at a time where you could have enjoyed it more, then uh, then then you you then you'd always end up in the gutter. Yeah. So you know it was important. It's just good that you sort of you get that crossroads, and as a, as a, as we've seen with many ex pros. You can either go down one road and it's not going to get any better, or you go down that other road where you you get that enlightenment and you decide, no, I, I can still salvage something from this game, and you did it in the form of coaching. Yeah, well, when I went to Malta, the, the coaching bit was luck, really. I was in the team. I didn't ever want to. If you ever ask any of the, the players from that era who would be the least person would be a coach, <laughs> they would say me. <laughs> they would say absolutely no. They'd probably put the house on it, that I would never be a coach. So what happened was the, the, the coach that I had got the sack. And because I was a foreigner and probably getting more money than, than the others, they said, you got to take the training. And I took yeah. the training. We did well. Uh, ended up with two promotions and getting to a cup final. So probably the hardest thing I've ever done being a player manager. Yeah. it's very 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 difficult probably hard harder than any job i've ever had yeah 
so know. so then then came the USA and then came your role eventually with England working in the lower age groups I mean people like Ashley Cole you would have coached uh, Peter Crouch I think ex Swindon Wise as people like Brian Howard Sean O'Hanlon Jermaine Pennant is another big name from from yeah. yesteryear and Matty Etherington who never got capped but he was pretty useful so how how did you go from that to USA to England well when I was in Malta what used to happen was during the summers that you wouldn't get paid so you either have to work on 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 your uh, on the boss's boat or in the, in the hotel that he had I didn't fancy that so <laughs> I, I went through uh, Mick Maguire at the PFA got me to go to Myrtle Beach in in Carolina and I started do, coaching out there and, and then Ricky Hill um, I went I went to Coco Expos well, with Ricky Hill and I was his assistant at the time and then the next next year the same thing happened Ricky came back to England and they asked me to take the team during, during the summer so I coached there um, and I was I was player player coach there so I probably put myself on when we were 3-0 up <laughs> do you know what I mean but um, so I did that that's what happened and uh, they asked me to also the guy who was running the, the expo used to to sponsor a lot of English lads at Florida Tech University. So I coached them as well. So I got a lot of experience in the USA coaching and, uh, you know, pre uh, top level coaching. But, you know, when you're standing on the side of the pitch, it doesn't matter where you are. If you have to win, the pressure is the same. Yeah. And the, the facilities in, in the USA, especially at collegiate level, they're, they're pretty damn good. So, you know, Very good. Yeah, so it's it's no you know it's no mean thing, and then eventually after England you go back to USA with Charleston Battery, where you win a championship with them, and I think you might have even replaced your Bristol City manager in a. I did. <laughs> I did. Um, I mean, I came back to England uh, from America, went to uni, um, which was very very difficult because I hadn't been to school for seventeen years. Yeah, um, and then. You know, after after uh, I worked at Orient, which was unbelievable learning learning curve for me. Got headhunted by the FA. Uh, I did that for a little while. Then I went with to Luton with Ricky Hill again, and then and Barnet with John Steele. And then I went back to 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 um, I went to Charleston to yeah. Charleston for three years. That was an amazing experience all over the place from Puerto Rico to Vancouver. Um, it, it was, it was unbelievable. So that was a very, very good grounding for me. But um, Alan Dix, uh, happened to be the manager and uh, his son who works at Disney in the, in the sports department there phoned me up because I was working in New Orleans at the time. And, um, and, I, and I went for the interview there and fortunately I got the job. Yeah. And after a couple of years, you win the, you win the title with them, don't you? In, yeah. in that in that playoff format, but um, plenty of players came through. I mean, Terry Phelan played in the World Cup. He he played with you as well, didn't he? Well, in those days, it was slightly different to it is now because the MLS only had ten teams in it, so yeah. the teams were closer. They were much closer. So, if you play in an MLS teams, you could be playing against Stoichkov and Valderrama and people like that. Yeah. So um, it was it was different to what to what it to what it is now at the moment the MLS is getting bigger and stronger and stronger but in those days it was closer and it gave me a lot of experience coaching players from different countries which was sort of a new thing back in those days in this country a lot of coaches would not have been coaching 
South Americans and Caribbean players and, you know, all, all at the same time. Yeah, I feel like I'm rushing through this, but, you know, we are running out of time. So it, 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 it's, a, it's a wonderful, it's a really interesting journey because, you know, there's a lot of people that just, you know, they coach here, they move on, they move on, they move on, but you sort of move around so much. And, you know, what we remember as Swindon fans really is the, is the Tottenham spell that you had working within the youth and working as a first team coach mainly because as Nemo has a question here you coached Mas Luongo, Nathan Byrne, Ryan Mason, Jack Bathroom, um, Dean Parrott all players that went on to play for Swindon and he wants to know well he would be interested in your recollections of those guys who would later play for Swindon either loan or permanent. Like, listen, they were all, all fantastic. It was a recommendation that Lee Power, who, 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 who's, who's the owner, you know, we, we had a relationship with him. We knew, knew him um, and we knew what, what he wanted to do. And the players were, were fantastic for us. We knew that they were good players. We knew that they deserved a career, but probably the standard at Tottenham or the amount of players at Tottenham, you know, they probably weren't going to get the career that they that they deserved. And fortunately, Swindon was a magnificent platform for them, the style of football that they played. And the fact that all the boys have gone on to have careers has been brilliant. Yeah, which one is the one that you go in? Yeah, we, we knew. We knew you'd kick on. Well, I have those lot. Yeah. We we probably knew all of them would kick on. They're just not at Tottenham. <laughs> it's as simple yeah, as that, isn't it? You know what I mean? Yeah. When you, they're top six, you're talking about... Top top six, you know. Yeah. I mean, even even Jack Bartram, who played for you briefly, you know, the, the the whole thing about development is making sure that the players meet their dream of being a professional footballer. They don't always have to meet you at the club that you're at. That that's really interesting because you know I've talked to many, and you know you can. It's not until later in their career do they realise that, or some of them realise that, man, I, I still played 300 times in the Football League. It just wasn't exactly. with Chelsea. It just wasn't with exactly. Tottenham. And they just need to... Re- do they Are they advised that at that moment or do they have to find that out for themselves? I think you end up finding it out for yourself. The game finds a level for you and it might be down to fortune or misfortune yeah. because you can get injured or timing timing's important as well you know so some players that you don't think are very good have a great career because by default and some players you think are very good don't have a good career because there's the path's blocked yeah and and now you're at qpr where you've had pretty much every role under the sun really you've been a player development you've managed the first team and now you're technical director in relation to your role now is is that is that your preferred sort of place in football now, working on, on the director side? I would take this role if they gave me a five-year deal. I'd sign it tomorrow because I work with the first team like this morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on a, on a, any given day, I can work with the first team and I can work with the under-9s on the same day. Yeah. So for me, you've got your development kick and you've got your three points heart attack <laughs> as well. So, uh, so for me, in my position... To actually be what a, a true meaning of a technical director is to affect the technical program of the club. Yeah, um, that I, I think I'm in. I'm in a really good place at the moment for me professionally. Fantastic, and of course, recently you were awarded an MBE um, for your work um, with Black and Minority uh, Minority Coaches. Jack Tanner asks. Um, what needs to be done to ensure that there's more black managers and coaches in football? Yeah, first of all, it's for, it, it was for football, which and 
diversity in sport. So, so I, I, I wouldn't have wanted it to just be for diversity because I thought that I think that would have been a tokenistic gesture. So uh, I've been in it 42 years and worked at every level in every division. So I think that that's you know something that I'm proud of. But what needs to be done is that um, myself and Les talk about it. It's it's people like yourselves who are good people who don't see um, don't see difference in people. Those people need to talk up because unfortunately people don't realise that your integrity is not everybody's integrity. So you, so a lot of people think, well, there's no racism because I'm not racist. Yeah. They don't realise that there are people who are racist. So it's always important to to for for the good people in the middle who are not affected need to be aware, more aware that there is a problem. And until we get those people in the middle to sway to a side, it would always it would always carry on. Because if you don't if you don't try and stop it, then you're almost complicit in it, even though you're not you don't mean to be. Yeah, and and do you believe there has been progress? I think there's been progress, but not not the progress that the, nowhere near the progress that there should have been. I mean, when you think about it, you know, like there's hardly any, there's, you know, for the amount of players that play in it and the amount of players that have been in it, uh, the the numbers are, are shockingly low of of uh, uh, BAME coaches um in the game and they're not and it doesn't necessarily mean to be that they need to be the manager of a top six team just the manager of anybody or just coaching someone's under 18s or someone's under 23s you know in more in prominent roles uh we talk about at the moment about this visibility visibility to me is an insult there are loads of coaches who have got the, the qualifications to coach at a high level and what what we do is pat people on the head and saying, well, you know, we'll make, we'll just, we'll give anybody, we'll give people that that don't deserve the job just because it's another uh, another um, black coach. I don't believe that people without the right ability should get a job, sure, regardless, regardless. Hello, I'm Anthony Grant, and you're listening to the Loathed Strangers podcast. Okay, well, one last question from Ash. He says. Are you glad that you played in the era that you did or would you have preferred to have played football in the modern day? Uh, from my family's point of view, in the modern day, because I could have could have looked after them better. I'm glad that I've that I played in the day that I played before because we knew the value of a pound note. And when we went out, there was no one being flat. Everyone had to buy their own pint or you get, you know, it was more, it was more innocent. We knew that winning on a Tuesday night meant you could pay your car insurance. You know, we, we knew that it was to, to, to points, the value of a point was uh, more heartfelt than it is now. You know, you lose now, you're still getting your thousands and thousands a week. Whereas when, when, uh, when, when, when the bonuses were like a quarter of your wages, you know, you had to be up for every game. And finally, my last question, which I ask everybody, when you close your eyes and think of your time at Swindon Town, whether it be on the pitch off the pitch, what are the memories that spring immediately to mind? The nights when we got uh, when we got promoted. I'm not sure if it was a Tuesday night against Chester Chesterfield or Chester. someone like that. Yeah, Chester uh, that night, and then there was one Saturday afternoon we got promoted as well when we all went up to the uh, where the directors are, and just 
that 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 were that team that that era that everybody loves was probably the most fun and the the best I've felt about myself in at that period of you know of my life. Chris, I learned so much through that. Thank you very much. All the best to Swindon fans, and I always loved that club. The Low Strangers is proudly sponsored by the official STFC Supporters Club. The music was created by the great Matthew Kilford, and the artwork was provided expertly by John Daglish. Thanks for listening. It's a grand old team to play for, and it's a grand old team to see. You know the history, it's enough to make your heart go. Oh, we don't care what the Newcastle say, what the hell do we care? Cause we only know that there's gonna be a show, and it's wind and time. Hi, Ellis Pod fans, it's JR here. If Swindon players were McDonald's items, who would they be? We've had lots of Big Macs, like the legendary Alan McLaughlin, Harry McCurdy, or even Steve McMahon. Perhaps you'd prefer to channel the power of McPlant, like Darren Ward, or maybe five chicken selects, one to enjoy for each time Ben Gladwin joined. Yep, there's one spare, but there's still time. And you don't need super scouts or data solutions to get your hands on any of these. McDelivery through the McDonald's app brings them all to you. At participating restaurants, 18 plus. Serving times, delivery fee, and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.